0: And really the renaissance in natural organic foods that America has seen and us actually paying attention to health and ingredient statements, that was driven by millennials who started to care. Gen Z takes all of that for granted. They don't even really know that that's what's happened, but they just expect non-GMO, organic, responsibly sourced product.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. How does a venture capitalist working in and around food actually grocery shop? Ellie Truesdale, founder and managing partner of New Fair Ventures, joins to tell us all about it. Ellie got her start working in the corporate offices of Whole Foods, and we find out about her nearly 10 years there, discovering some of our favorite food brands. We also find out what a VC actually does, and how she hunts for the next big things in CPG, short for consumer packaged goods i.e. the products lining the shelves of your favorite grocery store and neighborhood bodega. This is a really cool conversation with one of the sharpest minds in food. I hope you enjoy it. Ellie Truesdell, welcome to the Taste Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. It's great to be
1: here. I'm so excited. I reached out on LinkedIn, which I've been doing recently. I've been like all about LinkedIn, like the connection with founders and folks in VC do you find LinkedIn is a good place to, like, meet people these days?
0: I really do. I think it's really, really valuable. And I'm finding more and more that it's sort of democratizing yeah. the the talent pool. You know, I, I use it um, very liberally. I use it in terms of reference checks or even just finding, uh, you know, great talent for our portfolio companies. Absolutely.
1: It's so cool because um, it used to not be a content company. It used to be more like, what's your resume and all this stuff. But now it feels more content um, I bring it up because you're a, you're you run a venture fund. You're you're a VC. Quote, big air quotes. So for our audience, we've had a I think one VC on before, but it was a while ago. What exactly is a VC, and particularly in this emerging food brand space that you work in?
0: Sure. Yeah. It's a little bit different in food in some aspects, and then it's also just sort of standard issue venture. So the way I think about venture capital is really long-term growth potential investments. So what we're doing is we're looking at very early stage companies and putting money in at the seed Series A um, you know, moment in their their growth and expecting that over six, seven years, even nine, 10, 11 years, that we're going to see an outsized return from having made that bet so early. Yeah. So very high risk, high reward um, sector and asset class. And I think what's interesting to think about, just for people maybe who are, who are new to it, is on my side in running a venture fund, we're we're also in first-time sort of fund managers and a first-time general partner who's managing the fund. I'm a bit of an entrepreneur myself. So yeah. I'm raising money from limited partners or our LPs who are our investors. Mm-hmm. And what they like about it is they're seeing access to direct investments through us, but we're diversifying that risk. And it's certainly, it's a risky area to play, um, but that's, you know, based on my background and we can get into that, is exactly where we want to live of spotting things early, taking that risk and seeing the upside. I love
1: that you say long, you say years nine and 10, because I think when we look at VC, we think about, you know, multiples in in 18 months in this crazy world. But with food, we know we speak to founders all the time. We talk to chefs and all sorts of folks in in restaurants, and, and the margins are low. I mean, there isn't a lot of money in food. So when you're investing, you have to have that patience. This question about time is that, do you have to just make a lot of early seed in Series A bets to make it work for a fund?
0: You do. I think that's the one piece you'll see in most venture capital funds, potentially investing in 30, 40 companies yeah. and expecting two or three of those to be this massive outsized hit. And then potentially certainly some of them to fall off and not make it, and then some be much more modest outcomes. We are a bit differentiated in that sense, being we are specialists and we're in food only. Based on my 15-year career in food, and Hallie, my partner who's worked with me for five years, the idea is we know the space incredibly well. We're focused there. And so we sort of consider ourselves higher conviction venture in nice. not just sort of floating uh, as generalists, which, by the way, there are fantastic and amazing investors who you know, thrive in, in looking at business models and making it work across any industry. We have a very different approach where we're targeting early stage food businesses where we can help accelerate their growth and almost de-risk the investment yeah. from the onset. So that's our strategy. But in venture capital at large, there's um, you're probably seeing even more
1: portfolio portfolio mm-hmm. companies. I mean, you're, it is going to Vegas in some respects. You, you you really are making bets. So, New Fair Partners, I want to know how do you pick your companies? And this is a two part question. First, is you know straight up like are you talking about them around a table? And and is it a gut instinct? And the second part is is that um, are they pitching you? Are you f- in fielding inbound pitches all the time? How does that work?
0: It's so many different avenues. Yeah. I think um, you know part of my road to venture, which in many ways is very unusual, was that I spent 10 years at Whole Foods overseeing the local brands and product innovation program. And so for almost a decade, I was the person you came to if you were an emerging brand Mm -hmm. looking to launch at Whole Foods. And Whole Foods at the time had created this incredible platform and infrastructure for young brands to grow sustainably and incrementally and then um, eventually become national or global brands. So I think what's what I found was at the end of my time at Whole Foods, I had a lot of opportunity in venture and private equity, and I was honestly pretty naive to the value I'd created and the <laughs> the deal flow that was my life. Um, I just made myself incredibly accessible. The whole point of my job was to know everything that was happening in Mm -hmm. food and hear from every entrepreneur and founder. And so since leaving, which has been over five years now, I've really tried to maintain that position in the ecosystem and be that person in the food industry that everybody knows and that every founder feels comfortable making an introduction. So I think what that means for our deal flow and how we either get pitched or find companies, it's it's from so many different yeah. areas. We get introductions through fellow founders. We get a lot of pitches um, and we try to really look at every single one of them. I do think there's an element of psychology for any entrepreneur yeah. listening or founder listening. Getting actively pitched feels very different than having someone that you trust, recommend, and say, hey, I thought this was a really interesting product or a really amazing founder. I think you should meet them.
1: You also just don't want to miss something. You don't want, like, an inbound email from, um, you know, beyond meet.
0: 100%. And I think even through LinkedIn now, it's hard to manage all of the channels and how much communication comes in. I do get a lot of DMs through LinkedIn. But you know what? You never know. I got a really interesting message from someone I went to college with. So this is like 15, 16 years ago. I haven't talked to this guy. And I, it, I was like taking a long time to open the message. I just was sort of like, this isn't going to be anything interesting. Yeah. And then I open it up. His friend emails me with the company that he's pitching. And it's really interesting. It's not something I've never seen before. Cool. So I think there's really an element to just sort of, if you're in venture capital, you really need to be an optimist and believe in people being able to grow very very little into an an enormous idea or platform or company and so um yeah we want to see it all and we want to see it early
1: i want to uh, tap into whole foods and i I know about you at whole foods like you're definitely one of known quantity you were like one of the chief um talent scouts buyers you could use many different terms let's talk about pre- Amazon Whole Foods and post-Amazon Whole Foods. Can we have a real conversation? I think our listeners will understand what I'm getting at. There's a real sense that post-Amazon Whole Foods has changed. Um, there isn't a spirit there. The the, the discovery of brands is, is less in, enticing. There's a, a corporate nature when before there was certainly more of a grassroots. You'd walk into each store and they'd have an individual personality. Talk about the before and after. I know you were going to be diplomatic. You, you, Your, your companies that you invest in are sold at Whole Foods. So you can't like burn down that bridge. But let's be honest here.
0: <laughs> you know, I do. I feel like it was a pretty different time when I was at Whole Foods. And I feel incredibly lucky for the nine, almost 10 years that I was there. It was such an incredible company to work for. It was so mission driven. Every single team member. And this is a company that, you know, at the time was valued at 15 billion dollars tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of employees um, I think really understood and felt the mission and really lived by one of our core values, which was win-win supplier partnerships. So mm-hmm. that was a huge part of my role. And it was really strategic and really a huge part of driving revenue, dry, driving new customers to our stores because we had such an interesting product assortment and mix that you weren't going to find at any other national retailers. So you had the chance to buy Cheerios, to buy Rayo's marinara mm-hmm. sauce, you know, these national products. and then. You could find your favorite local honey and your favorite local coffee roaster that only sold to a handful of stores. So it was really unique in that regard. Um, I think I'll say a couple of things. Leading into the Amazon acquisition, a lot was happening behind the scenes. I think people read about, you know, ultimately Whole Foods was not meeting Wall Street's expectations. So getting really pressured, really hammered um, by the street. Fair or
1: unfair? I'll just jump in. Fair or unfair?
0: um, Fair? Fair given the environment and given we were for 20, 25 years the only game in town, and I cannot say enough good things about the way the company was built, decentralized, the level of empowerment at the store level created these incredible experiences and shifted the way Americans eat. So. So much to celebrate there. I think because of that, there then became a ton of competition and Whole Foods potentially didn't keep up. I think Got anything it. more, with, uh, not so much with other retailers, but with other fast casual concepts and in terms of prepared foods. And so we we were probably just losing some of those those people on the edges.
1: Shareholder value is always what they say in the street and Wall Street. And like it seems that some of the shareholder value clouds an actual working company. I mean, was it like making money at the time of this pressure to sell? Or, or, I mean, it seemed like th- certainly there was probably positive, you know, EBITDA. I mean, it was probably making money.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So it was just a very different pressure of seeing declining comps more than anything, yeah. store oh, over store so comps. Yeah. So and I'm sure if you talk to, you know, serious board or executive leadership, there is so much to say about um, sort of activist investors that came in and started yeah. to pressure um. Things to change, which resulted in the Amazon acquisition. But one thing I'll say before that and before we get to post Uh Amazon is there that pressure equated to a lot of changes that were happening internally. And so this is in my last year that I was there, 2017. A lot of executive leadership was changing over, and the decision was we need to centralize, we need to start recruiting people from big box retailers, yep. and we need to standardize this system because being decentralized regional local is wildly inefficient. We're leaving margin on the table. Yep. There was, there actually was reason to do that. We heard from our suppliers. You think about the Siggy's Yogurts of the world, Stacy's Pita Chips, brands, you know, Justin's Nut Butter, brands that had built— themselves through this regional network now we're global brands the way they saw it is you know now i walk into my walmart meeting i have one meeting a year with one category manager and i get my massive po yeah we have our joint business meeting and i'm set when it comes to whole foods i'm still meeting with 11 different buyers 11 different promo plans you know so it was it was inefficient that needed to change but i think unfortunately what happened is overcorrected they added a ton of sort of like bureaucracy and administrative process and hired a lot of people that really don't understand food um, Uh, that were more retail experts and and so that's that's when it all started to shift and then certainly um amazon comes in makes the acquisition and i think some of those surprised um
1: a lot of people were
0: Yes. Yes and no. I think I wasn't surprised that there was an acquisition. I was surprised that it was Amazon.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you knew the acquisition was rumored for a long time, but the Amazon buy was, I think, shocking to a lot of people.
0: Uh, yeah, I think absolutely. No, it was it was very shocking. Um, and the question was, okay, what are they after? You mm. know, what's, what's the real interest here? And for many years, I don't think Amazon integrated, and, and I would say many would, even say today, they're not that integrated, but they have really made their mark on what Amazon cares about and digital assets, and there's not the same level of, of customer experience. Um, but, you know, there have been some benefits in terms of pricing. There's been yeah, some course. benefits in terms of delivery and efficiency. So you can see both sides, but I, I do think on the brand product assortment and innovation level, it's it's been...
1: Disappointing, okay. Ellie. I have to, <laughs> uh, disappointing is the word you use, Ellie. What do you think about when you walk into a a a Whole Foods now in in early twenty twenty three? Are you surprised by what you see? Are you delighted? Um, words that are often used when talking about retail.
0: I actually am still delighted because I think the, the conversations like these are so maybe over overweighted in how much people adored and loved Whole Foods for so many years. So you hear you hear these complaints that. I, I get, I totally empathize with, but you also still walk into a store and I think this is absolutely still the best food retail experience that I have ever had and and it's certainly stamped out across the country. Um, so I'm still really impressed with the retail yeah. standards at Whole Foods. I think I always will be. Um, I think I am not as delighted by the product discovery um, and by some of the store experience in having so many Amazon um, team members who are also shopping and and that has cut labor internally. So you just don't have those product experts anymore yeah, in store.
1: It seems a little understaffed. We'll get into the future of the grocery store and retail. I, I have a whole section about that, but I want to know. Back to your time at Whole Foods, there must be a couple companies in particular that you're super proud of. You mentioned Stacy's pita chips and Justin's nut butter. I mean, I'm talking about companies that we are part of the fabric of cooking that you maybe got that early pitch.
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, there are so many, and it's fun to think about what sure. came in such waves. Like, we did a massive Greek yogurt review at one point because it was the thing. And, yeah. of course, you, you never hear about Greek yogurt today. We did a massive green juice, kombucha review, all of those things. Cold brew coffee was a huge— yeah. um, I. I do feel largely responsible for seeding that. And and it wasn't a category in the store. There wasn't a place for cold Did you buy Grady's? Grady's.
1: Were you the one who put Grady's up?
0: I did put Grady's up. I love Grady's. Um, So (laughs) many in Stumptown and and a lot of others. I was also really lucky to have license to bring in several. So we weren't just picking our one bet. We were really supporting a lot uh, of different Teams and founders in and across different categories of growth, mm-hmm. but I think I mean the uh, one of the examples I always use is RX bar. I did bring them in, and I I felt at the time, you know, had you asked me the day before would I ever bring in another protein bar that hmm. year, I would have said absolutely not. It's so totally it was saturated. as saturated
1: then as it feels now. Yes, interesting.
0: I think I honestly think bars will always feel saturated, and yeah. then there will just be these new takes and an interesting. Brand or positioning that hooks you, and there you go
1: I, I got go macros on my on my desk.
0: love go macro. Big I think that's fan. also you yeah. know highly differentiated and and yeah. there are the people who are loyalists that that they'll never stray. so yeah. uh, bars are are interesting in that way. um but the other couple brands that i I think are interesting um, you know, I connected with athletic brewing very, very early oh, days, sweet. but that's really a testament to Bill their CEO Bill Schufeld he found me and and I think that's actually so much of what ended up happening in my later years of, yes, I was out there still trying to find, but the the best entrepreneurs and a lot of um, the strongest teams would do their research and figure out, all right, this is the woman I need to talk to at Whole Foods and get uh, connected. So, you know, Athletic, I'm proud of. I brought in Luke's Lobster and Bowery Farming and a lot of yeah. um, companies that, that have seen some really great
1: growth. NA beer is interesting. And, and the fact that Whole Foods um seemingly put athletic on the map. Now that now that category is is just so exciting. What did you see in athletic back then when when you bought that when you bought this like baby brand. They were were they up in were they in Connecticut at the time? Yeah. Yeah.
0: In Connecticut and honestly what I did is I introduced him to the beer buyer. So so much of my job was all right, I've got to right. get I've got to get this in front of the person who's the expert. Um and that was what was really unique and amazing about my role. I touched every category. So I sort of know enough about each part of the store, but there are specialists and there, you know, there's a cheese buyer, there's a uh, beer buyer. So I put um, Bill in, in touch with Chris yeah. Minka and he he recognized this is really a unique take. And what I but what I knew was exceptional about Bill was I knew the brand was excellent. I yeah. could see that from day one and I knew his process was Really differentiated. And you could you can just feel it with certain entrepreneurs that he, he was leaving everything on the table. He had a big finance career and this was going to be his life from here on out. So I loved that.
1: And the product is dope. I mean, Athletic is a great brand and now N.A. Beer is, is exploding in, in the best possible ways. Totally random question off the dome. Can you describe the Whole food smell? Do you guys, like, talk about that internally as a—because it has a smell. All Whole Foods has the same smell.
0: So funny. I, we do not talk about that necessarily. I think there's always—you want to feel and smell fresh breads. You yes. want to smell things happening from prepared foods and bakery because things are happening in-house. But I think in terms of walking into produce— Honestly, that might even there's um you know most of the stores have laid concrete floors um yes. and they've they've got sort of a sheen to them uh, you know there may just be an element of how how that interacts with the produce and how how yeah. like you're you're associating but it's funny I don't think I've ever registered that smell. <laughs> it, it's
1: it's I have it I'll, I'll articulate it one day uh not not in this show but um I want to get into the modern eater. Can you describe it in in like a few words mm-hmm. the modern eater? And, you know, how is the modern eater being underserved by CPG companies in particular, which is what you really focus on, CPG food companies?
0: The modern eater to us is a younger consumer. So we look a a bit at millennials, of course, huge wallet share, but we certainly look at Gen Z and even younger to see how they're interacting with food and what they expect from food. So what I think is really interesting is I credit millennials in a big way for the sort of 10 years I was at Whole Foods and the interest and really the renaissance in natural organic foods that America has seen and us actually paying attention to health and ingredient statements, that was driven by millennials who started to care. What's so interesting to me about Gen Z, Gen Z takes all of that for granted. They don't even really know that that's what's happened, but they just expect from their food products, from their experiences, that they're getting non-GMO, organic, responsibly sourced product. That, That should be table stakes. And so what we think about in terms of the modern eater is them expecting and driving that much more. And that means climate consciousness. That means social responsibility. But it also really means community, digital enablement and engagement. So it's really driven by Gen Z and younger living online entirely and expecting to be able to interact with their brand and the people who are building that brand and feel some
1: authentic connection.
0: So that's, I think, a real difference in terms of what we find as the most exceptional next generation consumer brands is facilitating that type of connection where a younger consumer feels that passionate about what they're building and wants to be part of it.
1: I want to transition to a question related, because as Gen Z, you know, ages and and the earning uh, dollars, you know, increase and there's earning potential is higher. Retail is going to change. Um, I have had Emily Schultz on, who's the founder of Pop-Up Grocer, talking about her model, which is more about discovery and discovering some of those digital brands in a physical space. I've spoken at length about how modern grocery stores have too many SKUs, 40,000, 50,000, 80,000 in some of these stores, and it's just too much. It's wasteful. So related to your statement about Gen Z just kind of wanting it to be more laced with digital, and and I'm hearing um, it's just a given that stuff is good and healthy, that there needs to be more. How does this then transition the way grocery stores, where we buy our food mostly, change over the next decade? Because it seems... There is a change happening and, and and grocery stores are are broken in some in some cities.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch what emerges from right now. I, I love Emily's model. I'm really excited for her flagship in New York to open to see it as a permanent store and um, and how people interact with that. We are investors in Foxtrot and a huge fan of that model of sort of meeting all day parts, smaller corner store environment, but where you can get a meal, you can get your coffee, you can get wine at night. Um. So lots of different ways to play with uh, food retail. And one thing I think about a lot, uh, just because I, I hear from and I interact with a lot of chefs, is that I think we're what we're going to start to see as restaurants really start to bleed into other parts of our life, sort of by necessity, but also just because chefs are recognizing they have platforms that they can leverage and they can start to meet people in different parts of their day. Um I think we're going to start to see a lot of restaurants or four-wall concepts become that marketplace, that store. They're enabling delivery, and all of that um, is made possible by these chefs having massive platforms and the digital storytelling that I was talking about. They're going to be able to feed content and educate and show consumers how to um, interact with the food that they're making at home. And so – There's just so much fluidity right now in terms of how people eat, how they shop, how much they want to spend on a dinner out, but they might also want to go home with one of those prized products. You know, actually, I was eating dinner um, over the weekend at a really interesting Indian restaurant, um, Masala Wallet and Sons, and they have a whole retail menu that I could go home with spices, I could go home with chocolate bars, I could go home with um, different ready to drink. Uh, beverages, So uh, that I expect we'll see a lot more of.
1: I uh, I went to Masala Wall and Sons last week. Amazing. I loved <laughs> it. It was such a cool experience. And I have to say, uh, you know, what David Chang has done, he's pivoted his business straight out of restaurants. I mean, he's not as well reported, but he, he really is divested from restaurants and now doing media and CPG and, and all about products. And I guess a question to follow up is um, how does like a chef who doesn't necessarily have the largest platform um, make it work because I agree. Like I think sh- the model is broken for restaurants, so they need to be different in income streams and products are great. Is, is that possible?
0: I think for chefs who haven't yet gotten there, or maybe have no aspirations to be sure, a personality, because exactly. there there will yeah. be plenty in that camp as well. Um, it- most likely, there there should be a bit of a different model and some real creativity in terms of how people are sitting or eating. Um we are very close with the team at Inday. Bashu is a mm-hmm. founder uh, who's their founder is an advisor to Newfair. He just opened a new concept store in Williamsburg that is really interesting because you order from the counter and you bring to your seat one of those buzzers. But, the buzzer is a really new and novel way where if you still want more food, because it is still this cool environment, you can get wine, beer, liquor. You just raise that buzzer higher. It's sort of this standing sliding Mm -hmm. scale. You raise the buzzer, the team is alerted, and they come as if they're doing table service. So I think that just becoming more creative in terms of how service is used, and, and that certainly lines up to the back end for him, labor and the economics of making a restaurant work, that's certainly less labor on his part, but it's still giving a, a consumer what they want. So I, I think there are just a, there's even more creativity be, besides just the food, but yeah. also the experience.
1: There. I love it. it. It's such a great point that restaurants, the four walls of a restaurant needs to feel more interactive and and as much um, thought into that is, you know, in concert with the rest, with the dishes, with the menu, is going to really net a lot of great results for these these restaurants that maybe are struggling to make a dime. I want to talk to you about trends. Um, and you are an investor in Foxtrot, which is, you know, carries so many interesting food categories that are growing. Let's go over a few quote unquote trends that you're, you're seeing right now in food.
0: Yeah, excited about a few different trends or sometimes we like to call them movements. Yeah. Uh, We don't like to get too bogged down in I know. I hate that
1: word. I'm sorry even said it. No, no, no. I mean,
0: people ask me this all the time. But but the the categories we're excited about or areas of growth, um, premiumization of frozen, I think, is really interesting. Finally, Americans are sort of leaving behind the for whatever reason, the bad association with frozen foods and recognizing you can have really healthful, great, nutritionally sound frozen meals or um, snacks or whatever it is. So we're getting excited about a few different um, frozen meal options there. I mean, we think a ton about global flavors. When you look at our portfolio, we're invested in AmSam, we're invested in Bachans, and we're invested in uh, Tacombi and their consumer brand Vista and just love how how much bolder and brighter flavors are becoming, and how much more receptive Americans are to that in their everyday. So, you know, I think being excited by going to a restaurant, but now really wanting those flavors at Let's home. Let's jump in
1: and just say which which cuisine is going to pop when you think global flavors. It, it it says obviously what it is. It's it's food that's from the globe, but. Let's get more specific.
0: Honestly, what I think is so exciting is it's going to be so varied. On the one hand, you might see more regional Italian cuisine, where you actually understand that there's a difference. It's not just pasta from the entire country. It's you're going to get something different um, from Tuscany than you are from Milan. Those types of understandings. But I also think we're certainly excited about Mexican and how much um, can be done there. I think we've already started to see it. Looking a lot at African foods, West African food uh, right now. I think Mm -hmm. is having a really just Amazing, sort of, um, not even Renaissance. I just think that um, finally people are are becoming a little bit more exposed and excited. Um, and there are some incredible entrepreneurs building those highly authentic and representative um, flavors and and companies that we're excited to get behind. Yeah,
1: I'll link in the show notes. Max Velkowitz wrote a great piece about sub-Saharan African products. Maybe 2019. I know many of those brands are still growing, and I agree. Like, it'd be great to see more visibility for West uh, or sub-Saharan African products. Um, What are you seeing in in Asia? Uh, Are you seeing a country um, that maybe is going to have a moment um, in terms of uh, consumer products? Is there a category uh, that that you're looking at?
0: It's so interesting. I don't know if we necessarily look at a country or even a yeah. one particular cuisine so much of it is the founder and sure. the story and why they're building this business and so you know I know you recently had Kim Pham on the podcast and mm. just meeting Vanessa and Kim the sisters who are the co-founders of AmSam and understanding what's motivating them to build this brand and reclaim their flavors their story and bring that to the world is just so exciting and and we we really um bought into that and have known them for years and we're yeah. we're excited to support it but i think similarly um with other companies that we're invested in or looking at it is really tied to i mean it's so many things it's founder it's mission and purpose and then it's um flavors and how they're making it accessible yeah. for people i do still think like i'm very uh, aware of what americans want and how they will eat at home and it is not um it cannot be too complicated. So, striking sort of that middle ground is important.
1: So important. We talk about it all the time on Taste. We think about it all the time. We can't take for granted um, people's time, um, which is limited, and people's interest, which is sometimes limited, um, and desire to have delicious food. And it's very challenging when you're pitching something that's new um, and complicated. You know, you can't do both. You got to have one or the other, I guess. Um, okay, fizzles. There's got to be some trends that have fizzled out. Um, candidly, What's, what's, what's not working right now?
0: Yeah, I think hmm, I think there are plenty of things that especially when you walk shows it's always yeah. um very visible for me in watching walking in Expo West or <laughs> yeah. fancy, fancy food, food. Show to see what's uh what's happening and what's not. I am seeing less and less of keto, which is interesting for a while it was just on fire and so many brands were either picking up and creating their keto line if they weren't already a keto brand. So that maybe has seen mm-hmm. some fizzle. Um I also think a lot about The spiked seltzer or, you know, just sort of those categories of that are um, in beverage that probably people today are recognizing, oh, I shouldn't be drinking so many of these and and moving a lot into the NA world. And then the last thing that I think has been really interesting is plant-based sort of at any cost is not – great for people anymore. And when you watch uh, brands like Oatly and Beyond Meat who have seen some real trouble, what's so interesting to me about their growth is that they both started and really built, and and I guess actually Impossible being an even better example than Beyond Meat, they built their brands in food service and behind cafe bars and behind restaurants where people weren't looking at the ingredient statement and weren't actually scrutinizing the nutritional information. And as they've grown and as they've moved into grocery, now- you know, they're starting to feel feel that um, that level of scrutiny because people it's, have the chance to look at the back of the product. It's such
1: a great point. Um, the beyond impossible problems and the pains they've had, because it seems like they have been a growth at all costs. And that's been what their their investors have really. And now they're, you know, the public. So like the public markets are forcing them to grow and create all these skews like like impossible pork. Like, did we need that? Probably not. Um, but you're back to the original point, nine years, 10 years, you're not thinking about the impossible, like, grow, 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 right?
0: Not necessarily. I think there are some food companies that could sustain that growth or who are on some of that. Well, no, I shouldn't say should, could sustain this <laughs> <it> beyond <laughs> expectations or or even yeah. impossible. Um, those were, I think, in many cases, tech investors and a tech mindset that was being applied to food companies. That's it. And so, bingo,
1: bingo, bingo, bingo.
0: Yeah. And that that is one thing we will certainly never, we have built our fund and what we're modeling out and the scenarios that we're building for the future, which, you know, most, uh, if not all mm-hmm. investors are going to build when they're investing in a company, they're looking at six years out, 10 years out, what would we expect our return to be? And we are not, we're not unrealistic about what could be sustainable and safe growth? I mean, this is yeah. food you you really do have to be responsible in terms of um the growth pressure because there's a certain level of management that goes with and it just takes longer it put. takes
1: longer with food, especially especially food. Um we're talking about agriculture. sometimes it takes like twenty four months to grow this stuff. like right. talk, look at an olive oil company. like it takes like a year, and sometimes the harvest is bad. and I've heard the harvests have been quite bad this year, and it's going to affect so like having a having a tech bro. Um, say, why aren't you growing? Um, And the guy's, like, pointing at the sky and, like, this, this, you know, it's not raining. That's why I'm not growing. And not being able to square that seems like a big problem.
0: I think so. And I I mean, I think to sort of come back to New Fair's approach and strategy, that's a huge component to hopefully why we've been successful Mm -hmm. in getting deals and um, in playing the role that we intend to, which is really supportive capital and really hands-on capital because we actually understand the industry. We've built brands. We are operators. And that sort of empathy, I think, goes a long way with founders, especially ones who have had, you know, I think they got excited by and had the glittery lights of these incredible tech investors being on their cap table and then realizing, oh, man, this is really rough. They that's don't a understand this business at all. That,
1: that, that name on the cap table, that's a, that's a real pain in the ass right now, that, that name right there. It
0: really, really <laughs> is. I've seen that in, in plenty of yeah. um, companies we're involved with.
1: Um, one more category, the better for you soda. Like, that is insane. Like, I mean, I was just at the bodega near our office and there's new brands every two weeks. Is it saturated or are we, I mean, it's great stuff. Like I enjoy a probiotic soda. I love the flavors of some of these brands. Seems like a lot of companies though.
0: (laughs) Definitely a lot of companies. I'm always amazed at how many people want to jump into beverage because I think it's, if not the hardest category,
1: absolutely one So much competition.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can see in our portfolio, we are not yet invested in beverage and and. If we will, we'll do it very sparingly because it's incredibly competitive. It's incredibly expensive to maintain and grow shelf space. So I-, I do think it's a bit saturated. I think there have been some clear couple winners, and it'll be really interesting to see what happens. And I, I will say I'll just call out Olipop. I'm in- incredibly impressed by their process and um, their level of quality. And that it- that is entirely built on the fact that they own their own recipes and they – send and ship that raw material to their co-packers. So they're yeah. they, they are creating that base. No one else sees it. And it's not just a matter of adding natural flavors or doing whatever else. They've actually built something that's defensible um, in their production value. And we, we look at that a lot when we're vetting companies.
1: I, I'm an Olipop guy myself. I'm big fan. Love their cola. It's really good. Um, so you talk about not really taking on a lot of beverage because of the saturation see like rtd coffee i'm sure you're not really you know in, investing in on the flip side what are you looking for I, I mean better frozen i'm hearing that um difficult to r&d that i mean really t- tough to ship that stuff around but what like what are you looking for
0: yeah so we do invest outside of consumer um yeah. we primarily we expect 70% of the fund to be in consumer food and drink and the remaining 30% to be in some technologies some marketplaces and modern retail mm-hmm. so to your question earlier, really excited about where retail is headed and how we can play a role there. Um, We think a lot about sort of the digitization of the supply chain or um, how inputs are being cataloged, how inputs are being classified and now used on pack as marketing information. So companies that are, you know, working a bit more upstream to actually aggregate the information in food that's been very, very analog for so long is interesting to us. Um we in some cases are are looking at upcycled foods, but I I will say that with a caveat. Mm-hmm. We're not necessarily focused on single brands that are using upcycled ingredients because the hope is it's gonna become table stakes and be yeah. ubiquitous and private label and food service, anyone who can use waste streams will mm-hmm. um, and use that upcycled sort of moniker to show it. And so again, we're especially interested upstream in terms of supply chain companies and the technologies that are making um, that. Upcycle their waste utilization happening, Mm -hmm. Um, and then we think a lot about better snacking. Um, You know, when we talk about the modern eater, this is a person who's eating way more frequently and what we call short form eating. We're home. We're home. A lot of us are home, and
1: we're 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 working from um, you know alternative spaces, and we need to snack. Like Come on, like you're at your home, you're working, you got to have a snack.
0: We need to need to snack and. To your point, you're working from home or an alternative space that likely has a refrigerator or a yep. freezer nearby. It's really changed what people can be eating throughout the day and having that on the go snack. In some cases, mind you, everyone has a has a different setup at work. Um, but in some cases now, you really have the opportunity to bring your refrigerated bar, your, um, you know, one company that uh, is from my last fund, Almanac, that we invested in, Scout, is doing these yeah. really amazing um tuna kits. So you're you're actually getting crackers and you're getting a little um, garnish to go with tuna. It's one of the cleanest products you can imagine. Really high protein, free from sugar and just a great on the go mm.
1: snack. Um, so, Scout's dope. I know Scout and like the conservatin fish movement. Yes. Yes. All there. It's I'll, not it's not going away.
0: <laughs> not going away. It's really one of those categories that needed the I use disruption with quotes <laughs> um, know, needed the <laughs> but needed that Um, second look of this has been a legacy category for a very long time. What could we do that's new and different? Um, And I I think it's pretty cool to think about snacking rather than just sitting in your pantry. Um, So we're excited about that. And, um, you know, I've said it once, but I think watching what chefs and content creators do with their platforms, we are having a lot of conversations with some really exciting people who know that that will be their next big enterprises commercial products and consumer goods yeah. and so we will take part sparingly it's a, it's a lot of work to get involved early but we think that's a pretty exciting yeah.
1: next phase especially looking at millennials um, and mostly gen z and the way that influencers really affect the way that they buy food it's clear it's obvious and you say when you say sparingly you mean like working with an influencer or a chef and building a product line around them is that what you're saying
0: yeah potentially i think yeah. in in this fund one we are trying to go straight down the middle, very standard two and 20 fund where we're investing. We are hoping in the future, because there's a lot of opportunity to build brands and help build companies. <laughs> and we have done that once before with with Made by Nacho, which is a yep. brand and pet that I co-founded with Bobby Flay, the chef. Um, so we've had experience doing that and think there's a ton of opportunity to do it in the future.
1: Yeah. We we won't talk about pet food here just because we're the Taste Podcast, but I I, I love Nacho. What a cute cat. <laughs> very cute. Nacho's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Really want to hit on what you just said about legacy brands needing disruption. I'll say the word. I know you didn't with big air quotes, but we know what you're saying. Like Ortiz was great, but fish needed a disruption, needed new new packaging and new new brand. Okay, so what's on your whiteboard in your office right now with with disruption in mind? What What categories are you looking at that could actually get a fresh set of eyes? Of course, while honoring the heritage and honoring the companies that have been doing it for 50, 100 years, because you're obviously not going to replace them. We'll always have Ortiz uh, tuna, which is the best in the world. But we also have uh, fishwife, which is great, too.
0: So I think we these days think about it a little bit differently just in terms of format, because there are so few white spaces left. And and I love being shocked or surprised of, oh, my gosh, you're right. No one's looking at. You know what? I'd use ramen as an example. About two, three years ago, there started to be recognition that, oh, my gosh, no one's looked at or tried to come through with a better for you ramen. And of course, now there are 10 companies that we're seeing, uh, tackling that, that challenge and and we'll see who ends up being the winner. But when I think about huge categories and what, people use every day what really interested me you know you mentioned ready to drink coffee most likely wouldn't invest there but i do really love the companies one great example is jot which i use every day they are it's a concentrate of cold brew coffee it is shelf stable in terms of how it comes to you So there's a lot of, you know, sort of environmental footprint reasons why I like it. And uh, each morning I'm using a tablespoon of that concentrate and a cup of water and I'm Mm. making a cold brew at home, um, which in old days I used to cold brew myself, but just am not finding the time. So I think that sort of disruption is is purely just use case function and how people are eating. I think we also look a lot – this is the question around chefs or content creators. So much of what Gen Z wants is – To look as if they've spent a ton of time on the food that they made but really not spent much time at all, I I think there's an element Mm -hmm. of we just track Gen Z as finding food as such a huge part of their identity, but they're still not necessarily spending hours cooking. And so we're excited about working with – key figures, whether it's content creators or chefs, who have the ability to make something that's sort of like the basis of your meal. Yeah. And then you get to finish it off and, and make it your own. Which is Omsam's model.
1: some totally nailed it with those guys.
0: Absolutely. I, and
1: I love it. I have had them on. I, I love the product. It's delicious.
0: Absolutely. And what's fantastic about Omsam and Kim in particular is her having the chance digitally to... Tell those stories and also to educate on how to use the product. I think that's what we're seeing a lot from these chefs as well, is there's real instruction and education that goes along with it.
1: What kind of home cook are you? Are you like, you know, a few short meals, small meals very fast? Are you like leisurely dinner parties? What, what do you what do you like to cook?
0: Oh gosh. I these days I do love to cook. I try to cook almost every day. Um yeah. That said, it's a it's very different than what it used to look like now with a young family and all that's going on workwise. But I I try to cook simply, so I'm I'm not a recipe user at all. I no. <sighs> my gosh, you're in the
1: you're in Pengiran Mouse that we create cookbooks here.
0: <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I buy a I'm ton kid, I'm of, of cookbooks, of course. and I'm lucky to be gifted a ton of cookbooks. Of course. So of course. love reading them, but I I do sort of rely on my own. I just try to be quick and efficient, and so. Last night I made salmon with bachans and, you know, sautéed zucchini mm-hmm. and onions, and that was quick and delicious and great. Um, I think, <laughs> I sort of joke about this, but because of my job for 10 years, I was conditioned to sort of eat every two hours, yeah. if not more. <laughs> I bet. So I'm definitely small, um, small meal and snacker. Like, I'm, I'm eating all the time. I'm tasting things left and right. I mm-hmm. sort of can't help myself. Um, but I do. I love to cook, and the ideal for me is getting to the farmer's market and Cooking a more elaborate meal, but that's happening less and less. Yeah,
1: less and less. It's always tricky. Do you have a do you have a place you want to visit for food? Country? Oh, city. Gosh.
0: Yes. Um, Japan is probably my yeah. number one hit, uh, yeah. but there are a lot. I, different pla- different regions of Italy that I haven't visited. Um, really interested in going to Morocco and other places. Uh, Ethiopia is a big,
1: mm-hmm.
0: big one. So many different regions of Mexico. I love Mexico. Yeah.
1: And your investment to Combi, I'm sure you have great plugs in Mexico. You can have some, a good time, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. I, I feel lucky. That's honestly so much of how my travel gets led is, is there yeah. someone who I feel could guide me where we're going that I'm going to have um, enough sort of an inside look. That, that's really attractive.
1: <laughs> Ellie, we asked all guests on the Taste podcast, if you can write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world no budget what would that book be
0: I love this question cuz I have thought about this for a long time I would be really interested to build a a cookbook first and even maybe a series cuz it's pretty visual around each each chapter being built on a staple um plant or ingredient of food corn wheat tomatoes yeah. olives You're really learning about that input and that, you know, the history, the agriculture, et cetera. But what I find even more interesting is then to take that particular cacao, let's say, as an example, and tell the story of cacao through three producers or really three brands that have taken it and used it in different directions. Oh, cool. Um, And and really, the reason I've had that thought around a book is because I feel so lucky for, for 10 years, I was learning about food all day long from experts who were, you know, so passionate and who knew- all that it, there was to know about that particular ingredient and sort of shared it back with me. And I'm I'm that type of learner. I love learning from people. So it was just an amazing education for a decade to be yeah. interacting with these experts, getting to see their production. And I think so few people really understand how value-added products get made and, and what that process looks like and even what is good processing, what might be um, considered ultra-processing and mm-hmm. then becomes not good for you. So I, I think it's a exciting and sort of rich. Uh, I love that. I have the same
1: privileges as writing about food every day I'm learning. And I'd love to just see how you break down cacao and chocolate and the industry and how like chocolate's marketed too, because, you know, a lot of stuff is 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 kind of just like made up about chocolate, especially on the packaging.
0: Yeah. No, I think you could go in a lot of different directions to really try to demystify things for people yeah. around claims and what do they actually mean and how can you check if these are even validated so it, yeah. yeah could be could be pretty interesting
1: Ellie Truesdale, thank you for joining the taste podcast
0: thank you so much
1: Kristen Donnelly, welcome to the Taste Podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Matt. So happy to be here.
1: I'm really stoked that you you came into the studio, and I'm seeing you face-to-face. It's been a little while.
2: It's been a long time. I
1: know. So let's get into it. I want to first talk about your, your editorial career. Yeah. You worked at Food & Wine, a magazine, a print magazine from 2005 to 2013. I mean, those are some pretty great years and some maybe not so great years in terms of the magazine food editorial world. Yeah. What was what? My question is is how has it changed?
2: Well, I'm not there now, so it's hard to say internally. But yeah, when you said great, I remember in like 2006, mm-hmm. maybe 2007, we were adding pages to the magazine. Like that, it was like we have all these advertisers. Yeah, we're adding pages. We need more content. Um, and that was awesome. And then you know you get into 2008. Yeah, and there's a recession. So that was that was tough and we got scrappier Um, in terms of how it's changed at least at food and wine it's hard for me to speak to food media globally although this might apply Um, but we focused a lot on chefs and Mm -hmm. often defined chefs as people with restaurants and I do think looking back that often favored a lot of white men Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that their magazines are defining food expertise in many different ways and there's just so much more interest in food and coming at food from so many different ways and it just brings in a lot more voices mm-hmm. so those that's kind of the big changes i've seen with food and wine but probably food media as a whole i
1: love that you brought that up and it's it's 10 years since you've left but it's it's almost like light years oh yeah you know away and and I think the diversity of voices in the print, where I'm talking about print, physical print, is, is just so exciting when you pick up a, a BA or you pick up a food and wine and you see not just white dudes yeah. in tokes and bullshit like that. Yeah,
2: like sharing their, like, cooking tips where, yeah. you know, this is the way. yeah, um, <laughs> great,
1: uh, Great voice there. White, like white dude <laughs> yeah. assertive voice this is the way you sear a steak you got it okay i mean i am a white guy so like i definitely like <laughs> checking myself here um i want to get into like what food editorial was back then in like 2007 8 and 9 like making a magazine mm-hmm. when magazines had a lot more juice in food media i mean you were selling way more copies and 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 there was just it was at every airport and every you know Newsstand and those mattered. What did you feel at that time? You were like on top of the world a little bit,
2: for sure. I mean, it was a dream job, and like I still love magazines. Like as a form, I just love the pacing of a magazine, where you start off and you have these pages with you know little blips of content, and then you move through and get to these longer, juicier stories. You know, full bleed photography. Um, So. It was amazing, but I I, I felt like it even felt a little precarious then, especially mm-hmm. with O.E., and there was always this thread of it going away. I know. And they live on, you know, and there are people for them. But it is, you know, like you said, the, at airports or the, like the magazine stores in New York City. Oh, yeah. You know, Remember those? Yeah. I mean, you could just be there awesome. for hours looking at magazines from all over the yeah. place and there's fewer and fewer yeah
1: gotta shut out casa magazine though downtown you gotta go there that's still one magazine <laughs> nice. sort of that's around but um you were editing features you were editing recipes what was the travel budget like early days food and wine when you were there were you able to get people into cool situations with some nice budgets now granted we aren't talking about ruth roichel gourmet yeah 1997 here it's a yeah. little different but still pretty good though
2: i feel like it's funny like when I was there, people talked about the glory days from 10 years prior, yeah. so it's hard for me to be like, oh, those were the glory days. But, um, of course, there was some kind of travel budget, yeah. it, it, but it, it was scrappy at the same yeah. time. We, I, I do feel like we— You we, still
1: didn't fly people around at that point because of the recession. Uh, put, I'm putting you on the spot here. Do you have a favorite a Food & Wine Best New Chef?
2: It's hard for me to say favorite in terms of food because— there's a lot of amazing food. But I will say, as a person, somebody I love is Jen Lewis in Portland. She was best new chef for her restaurant, and now she's actually more of an activist. She's written some really lovely books. I, th- I think I, earlier I was talking about how chef was so defined by just having a restaurant, and I just like watching Jen's evolution, and I also just think she's an awesome person.
1: She is great. I think that's a great call. I think her book about chicken soup is excellent, a little underrated, to be honest. Totally. And she's written books about vegetables, and she's an activist.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the, bu- the book about greens is really great. So, yeah, she's she's cool, cool person.
1: So how did you start writing cookbooks?
2: Well, when I was at Food & Wine, sometimes— I would assist with the cookbooks that they produced. Cool. So I did have some exposure to the bookmaking process and print, you know, actually like moving pages around and what that was like to edit. So, um, but it was a fairly intentional move. I left Food & Wine in 2013. I had a one-year-old. I wanted more flexibility. And so I wanted to freelance. Left to freelance and I started pursuing projects in... Like working on cookbooks, and it wasn't just like oh, and now I get to work on cookbooks. It certainly <laughs> right. it was like a slow build. So yeah. you know, first I was helping like behind the scenes sometimes with project management, sometimes recipe testing, sometimes I would ghost develop recipes for people, um, and then it was probably several years until I actually took on like a full co-writing job.
1: Yeah. Now, um, what do you like about cookbooks, and then, then working on the, on these? These beasts, these projects that really, and um, we'll talk about some of my and your uh, deadline anxieties that we always have. <laughs> but but why? But why are you drawn to them? Because you've ma- you've made many of them.
2: It is. I do love the work. It's funny. I, I talk about this sometimes on our podcast, Everything Cookbooks. Like it, I do it for the work, not necessarily for the glory of the finished product. Um, I just love it. And with being a collaborator, I love helping people tell their stories to the best they can. So um, that's what it is. It's yeah. pretty dreamy.
1: Yeah. So the, the actual work, like the actual, like when it comes out and, and doing the press, that's maybe less interesting and you like doing the work. I love that. I'm the same way. I think the work is so gratifying, um, be it working with a, a chef or writing your own essays. We don't talk too much about the craft of writing cookbooks on the show, and I, you're a great person to speak about it but let's get into it like what does a cookbook collaborator actually do versus a cookbook author full author it's a little different
2: yeah i have authored my own cookbook yes as myself and that you know you're producing that from beginning to end except i'm not a photographer or a food stylist so i get help with those aspects and of course you know editorial yeah um but as a collaborator it's almost like it's like custom, you know, you're, you're it, it's customized to mm-hmm. the person I work with. So it doesn't always look like the exact same process at all. Um, I've worked I've developed recipes for people's cookbooks because they have a story to tell, but they're not actually recipe people. I've done it where I write almost everything but somebody else. It's, but it is that person's mm-hmm. recipes. Um, Yeah, it, it's 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 customized
1: yeah how do you tap into a voice then and you're writing a book with sean sherman we'll talk about that book for clarkson potter and i want to get the the voice part i mean that's that that to me is one of the biggest challenges if you're collaborating is to get the your your chefs or the the person you're collaborating with voice right
2: well i'll say with that book right now that is so much in the messy middle i can't speak to like how yeah Crafting the voice because we are having other writers, but um, in general, I do spend a lot of time like listening to the person. When I, I worked on a book called The Chef's Garden with Farmer Lee Jones, and he has a really distinctive way of speaking,
1: he has really distinctive overalls too. Yeah, like oh, totally. extremely, distinctive. oh,
2: yeah, he's famous for them.
1: He'll roll into any event with those overalls. I'd oh, love yeah, it. yeah, it's really cool.
2: Yeah, so um, I'll spend a lot of you know, he does a lot of press, so it's like listening to him talk and then reading things that he mm. he's done a lot of interviews where um q a style interviews so reading those and i feel like you almost like steep yourself in this voice and yeah. i actually i do a lot in addition to writing cookbooks i uh do a lot of copywriting for brands and it's very similar mm-hmm. because brands have a distinctive way of speaking and so you just spend some time st- yeah steeping yourself and I then like next food, thing you get know, good food
1: drink metaphor yeah. Good totally, one. Good totally. one um What's the messy middle? You just referenced <laughs> it and I'm like, okay, I know what that is because I've been there. But yeah. W- just define it.
2: The messy middle, <laughs> uh, it's like, I feel like sometimes it's most of the cookbook writing process, but- sure
1: is. Yeah. Bingo.
2: <laughs> but it is where, you know, you've hopefully created a proposal and you had this sense like, this is what we're going to do, right?
1: Such confidence. Yes.
2: And then- you're working on it, and things maybe aren't looking exactly like they do in the proposal. Mm-hmm. And you're changing things and making decisions, and maybe feeling unsure. And everything's like all you know—it's like this ball of yarn, or that's totally unraveled. Um, and then you gotta try to like pull it neatly back together. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the messy middle is when the yarn is all
1: unraveled. Yeah. And you're <laughs> When you're making these decisions, do you feel your editor is, like, on your shoulder sometimes? Do you have that, like, in the in your head or are you separate from that?
2: So for me, I guess a lot of times the messy middle is even before handing it in to the editor. Yeah. Because I do try to hand in a pretty clean manuscript. So, uh, yeah, I don't think about the editor at that point.
1: I love it. That's really great because I don't. Uh, have that uh, ability. <laughs> I'm always thinking about what's the editor going to think about these choices we're making because you're making choices along the way. So many choices yeah. um, between the recipe list and who you're interviewing, and obviously organization. Yeah, yeah. So where? So with Sean's book right now, where? First of, who is Sean? Let's let's get into this right now. Sure. I love this. I love that this uh, Sean Sherman and and it'll be out in a couple of years. I'm sure Clarkson Potter. But talk about Sean a little bit.
2: Well, Sean is, uh, he's an indigenous chef based in Minnesota. He has a restaurant called Owamni. Talks a lot all over the country about indigenous food sovereignty um, and just a really awesome guy. Yeah. Um, And so the book we're working on is called Turtle Island. And the idea of it is to look at, north america as if it didn't have colonial borders and it look at the various regions as um, a food space but then also to tell the story of the people who are there and descend from those who were there uh, before european contact so it's a big it's a big project
1: it sounds like there's a map that you have to kind of yes, have in mind. Sure. Like there's a real map. Oh, We're yeah. talking about a pre-colonial map. And how do you represent the different sections of the map? Is is Or is it more upper Midwest cuisine?
2: It's not. It's it's all over. And um, we have a map in mind, and then we will have a map. You
1: will have like a real map. Crafted. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Uh,
2: the recipes will be from Sean, and it's mm-hmm. not necessarily— it's not, even though there will be stories about history— it's not meant to be a historical cooking book. It's meant to be a modern cooking book.
1: Well, we'll have you or Sean or both back when that comes out, and we'll talk about the book when it's actually in its final form.
2: Yeah, yeah, it has a. We we have a long way to go. I will say that. So. Oh yeah. Um, it'll it'll be fun.
1: <laughs> Broader question: yeah. What is the point of a cookbook right now in 2023? Like, what's the point of it?
2: I see it twofold, or two types. Yeah. Um. One is, you know, it's the dream. And it's like we did this survey recently on everything cookbooks just on our Instagram. And tons of people read cookbooks in bed. You know, it's their nightly reading, how they fall asleep. And there's a dreamy, transportive aspect. And some people might never cook those recipes. And and I think about like, you know, this product, this thing, mm-hmm. it's like $30 or $40. And you, it's like the cheapest. Vacation in some ways, love
1: that. Yeah, so right. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, a affordable luxury.
2: Totally affordable luxury. Owning
1: a cookbook and, yeah. and going somewhere, or or staying home and it being uh, more of a home cooking skills type of work. But yeah. Yeah. it's it's such an affordable luxury to be able to go on that vacation.
2: Yeah, or maybe it's not always vacation. No. It's you know a learning journey, whatever. But yeah. but I think you know it's like yeah, some people will drop like thirty bucks on a cocktail or two yeah. and. But like sometimes cookbooks are a harder sell and then you're like, but all this value you get from it. <laughs> so there's that. And then there I do see it as like the practical tool cooking book where you don't necessarily have the distraction and overwhelm of online. So if there's somebody you really trust or like and they come out with a book, it's a way to have these solid recipes that you can make and rely on um, these friends in your kitchen, you know. Love
1: that. Did you learn anything else from the survey that you put out that about the modern cookbook buyer or the modern cookbook customer? I, I'd really be curious.
2: It's funny, we should do it more often. I think it was just one of those things we did on the fly and yeah. it, people were so passionate about it that we were amazed. So, it, we need to do more of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, is there a sense that cookbooks are on the rise? I mean, your your podcast talks about the industry a lot and you you you're, you teach a class about cookbook proposal writing. I work in cookbook P- publishing myself, so I, I'm biased. But what do you think? Like, is it is it a growth opportunity right now?
2: We focus a lot on book making and yeah. that behind-the-scenes thing. And it does seem like there's a lot of opportunity there because people don't know a lot of times how books get made or they mm-hmm. have this vague idea in their minds. I want to write a cookbook, but there's just so many steps to get there. I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but— in terms of like, I actually haven't looked at cookbook sales numbers, yeah. recently, so I have no
1: idea. Paula Forbes writes about it usually in her in her newsletter, uh, which is a great resource it too is. about sales. Yeah. And I, I think it seems like last year was was very a great year for cookbooks. And the pandemic was an incredible couple years for cookbooks for that obvious reasons. Uh, but now we're looking ahead in a very different world, and we'll see. I think I think the editorially speaking, it's it hasn't been better.
2: Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. Because, you know, cookbooks take so long to make, so to react yeah. to trends that are happening can take a while. Um,
1: yeah. So, Let's talk about recipe testing. You yes. you are also a hired gun for recipe testing, which is a totally different discipline uh, to writing and developing recipes. And And let's talk a little bit about what that process is when you're hired to test a recipe.
2: A lot of times when I'm hired, it's usually when people have their recipes where— they're very close or they think they, they're where they want them and they basically just need somebody to run through them again. Um, my, one of my mentors, Tina Ulaki, she now tests a lot of recipes and she always talks about it being like editing recipes in 3D. Mm. So it is a way to help Love an that. author like figure out if there's a better way to say something, if there's a more clear way to call for an ingredient. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just a, it's, a, it's another perspective. But there are times occasionally where I'll, like, have to test a recipe and fix it. Um, I, I feel like that's a little more more rare.
1: Yeah. Do you ever give them just a note, like, straight up, this does not work? Um, You're probably a little more productive than just, like, it doesn't work, but I'm sure so. Yeah.
2: Some- well, it's funny. This was a, from a long time ago, but I did have a lot of recipes that called for rice flour, and none mm. of them were working. And we realized that the brand of rice flour mattered a lot. Yeah. And so— go. Like, the hydration level. Well, it was like I was using Bob's Red Mill, and so oh, it just, like, yeah. wasn't working—you know, it wasn't yeah. coming out um, the way the recipe was supposed to. So sometimes there are things like that that come out in the testing process where you're like, oh, okay, we really need to specify
1: that. Super valuable to, to actually do the work and test recipes and make that discovery. Really interesting. Let's um, talk a little bit more about your podcast. I I really love it, and I'm think I'm going to have Kate on soon, and that means all four of you have been on the our show.
2: Yeah, thank you. Man.
1: Um, you're welcome. It's great, and I think you're right. It's about the craft of making cookbooks, and I'll link to it in the show notes. But I want to get a sense of who wants to write cookbooks right now. It seems like we talked about the industry is is really thriving. You teach a class, but who who is who is the cookbook writer that you you're you're liaising with?
2: Oh, it's a whole bunch of people. Sometimes it's people, you know, there are chefs who want to yeah. write cookbooks. There are all kinds of food business owners who want to. There are people who have personal stories to tell related to food. I mean, it it, it kind of runs the gamut. and it's I want to say it's the same in some ways, it's the same people who've always wanted to write or write a cookbook. but um it is interesting. i I feel like for some people who are, really amazing writers they're they're seeing the literary potential of cookbooks and so that's starting to interest some yeah. people who are great writers as well as great cooks
1: yeah and that's that's like the magic that's the fairy dust when you have like the great chops in the kitchen and the great editorial talent yeah so what so let me ask you when someone says i want to write a cookbook like, what do you say to them? Like, what's what's your quick... Do you have, like, a stump <laughs> speech?
2: Yeah, well, it's like, listen to the first 10 episodes of Everything Cookbooks. I love <laughs> that. No, please. It really does
1: go through the basics, and I will link to it, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 ha- it is funny. That's sort of the reason we created that podcast, because yeah. it was like, let's put this out there. You know, there's four of us, four different perspectives. Mm-hmm. We kind of all came to it a different way. Let's hash it out and at least share what we know. And now um we're bringing in a lot more people and talking about their bookmaking processes so um but the first 10 episodes are almost this i i don't remember if it's 10 or 12 but in that range especially the first 5 it's like how do you begin
1: yeah so listen to those episodes um do you think it sounds from what you're saying there's a lot of different people who want to write books but there's probably a lot of misinformation about out there economics about the time about the the lead time What's one thing that maybe initial potential authors kind of get wrong pretty regularly about the cookbook writing process?
2: Well, there is also a financial consideration, which I think some people know. Some people know, and some people don't. But um, unless you're an exception, like an Ina Garten or something, mm. it's not necessarily a way to like get rich, like just writing a cookbook. And um, the it's almost like the book. Helps you then get other work through other things. You know, you can start speaking, you can start teaching, you can help other people with books, like I've done. Um, so I think I think just the financial aspect. Some people yeah don't really realize like ha- it's so much time and so much work. Like you don't want to ever figure out that hourly rate.
1: That's what you I never really say. want to do the math. I, <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. I kind of hope, was hoping you would say that because it is true. Uh, it's tough to make a living just writing cookbooks, but it is. it does open a lot of doors. And I think the outside of the joy of actually the work, which right. we share, um, you're definitely going to be given something like an opportunity to speak, but it's not necessarily going to be money in your pocket because you're usually investing a lot of it back in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're the author. And uh, there's also a cash flow consideration. I mean, this is like very nerdy, business nerdy, but, you know, even let's say you get a hundred thousand dollar advance which sounds amazing but then it's divided out over four payments and then you need to pay all these people plus who,
1: taxes plus taxes yeah. Yeah. yeah
2: although you know in the beginning a lot of it's just going to be like going out the door to a photographer so you don't need to pay taxes on yeah. this stuff where you're have expenses but i mean this is like real business nerdy cookbook stuff but um the cash flow of it's challenging
1: oh it is yeah, yeah. no definitely yeah, the quarterly payment's tough. Your agent has to get you that, you know, more up front. But, yeah, it's usually you don't get, like, a real check until the very end. And mm-hmm. It's challenging. But, again, it's it shouldn't hold anyone back. It just no. has to be being real about the economics is important. I don't think it's nerdy. I think it's important. If if listeners are tuning in and have a cookbook idea, you should definitely pursue it and listen yeah. to the show. The first 10 episodes are great. But just know that the economics um, are not quite what you might expect seeing some of these like, you know, bigger chefs and, you know, potentially looking like they're making millions off their books.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's usually coming from other ways.
1: Yeah, uh, it is. Let me I finally want to ask you about your about your own writing. How do you pick your projects?
2: Uh, let's see. It's funny. I think because of the chef's garden, I almost have this like mini niche in food and its relationship to plants. Yeah. Because um, I worked on this book called Rice is Life with the owners of Lotus Foods. It was published by Chronicle. And that goes so much into looking at rice as a plant and the agriculture. Yeah. Um, the Chef's Garden was about that, obviously. And now Turtle Island is a lot about that. That's where I've spent a lot of time researching plants and yeah. using plants. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to say that's how I choose my projects, but I, I am drawn to them. I, I am, I'm I also—I'm drawn to projects a lot of times where I guess the author is very passionate about what they do.
1: So. Love that. Great answer. <laughs> you must have a really nice garden. You must have, like, a really uh, special garden.
2: No, I wish I had a—I spe- have a deck garden. Yeah. Yeah, and um, sometimes it's special and sometimes it's not, you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> and sure. It's, it's, it, I mean— if you want to have like a million metaphors for life, you just got a garden. And, <laughs> it's hard, yeah. dude. I, I've tried a few
1: seasons. It's tough. It's gardening is tough.
2: <laughs> well, you just got to stay on top of it.
1: Yeah, the weeding and stuff. Yeah. Okay, I want to ask you five recent or classic cookbooks. Let's just go. There. Oh man, I, yeah. I wanna. I really want to go over. I love your picks, and you know, maybe un- unearthing a couple that we've forgotten about, or or even new ones coming out. What do you got?
2: Yeah. So, actually, I think when you said cl- classic, I wasn't. I, I think I don't go so far back, but um, so I have a couple new ones. Oh, great. I think mostly new ones, actually, looking at this.
1: Thanks for coming prepared. I love <laughs> it. Appreciate it.
2: <laughs> um, so a book I'm super excited about is Cooking for the Culture by Toya Bodhi. Uh, Toya was actually just on Everything Cookbooks and uh, just the way she writes, the way she thinks about food, the way she thinks about life and art and um, energy is really inspiring. So that's a book I want to mention. Um, Korean American by Eric Kim. I think both of these books, Cooking for the Culture and Mm -hmm. Korean American, I feel like they're books that only those people could do. Yeah,
1: I definitely agree.
2: Um, It's so autobiographical, and I feel like both books give us new ideas for what a cookbook could be. And then um, a book I've just been loving lately is a sweet book called uh, Gâteau by um, Alexandra Crepano I hope I'm saying her last name right. Um, it's a book of uh, French cakes and yep. French cakes at home. It's really sweet. And
1: she illustrates those, and too. And it's all illustrated. It's a cool book, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like that book a lot. Yeah,
2: and her, her like... Her writing is beautiful, so just the head notes, I, I like mm-hmm. to just sit there, especially if I'm having some anxiety at night, I'll read them, and I'm like, oh, it's very soothing.
1: I love that. I do the same <laughs> thing when I'm writing my own head notes. I, I'll, I'll, I'll dip into somebody's I really like. Like, Eric is a great example. Yeah. Head note writer extraordinaire. Allison Roman writes amazing head notes yeah. for, for tone and for humor. Yeah. I just love, I love, like, it sinking in, you know?
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah. get little turns of phrase ideas. Turn
1: of phrase, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I Dream of Dinner by Ali Slagle mm-hmm. is just really smart. I don't want to say I'm jealous, but, you know, <laughs> she, is, she is just a really smart recipe developer. And that's a book that I just cook from all the time. Um, and I have been enjoying Tabla by Rebecca Pepler because I have a— um, secret fantasy or not so secret now but to move to france yeah so it's uh, not
1: so secret it's out no (laughs) and and talk about taking a vacation yeah like let's hang with rebecca when we're in paris yeah right what nice parties there
2: yeah yeah and you get to just immerse yourself in her world
1: yeah tabla is cool i forgot about that one i'm glad you brought it up i haven't had her on the show
2: oh okay i gotta Uh, i gotta i
1: gotta gotta reach out
2: yeah yeah next time she's in new york city
1: very cool great list thanks all over the kind of quirky
2: right it's mostly new stuff but
1: yeah deadlines we got to talk about it a little bit <laughs> how do you handle them that you've got multiple you've got client work you've got cookbook work you've got a podcast you're a freelancer i mean how do you deal with all the deadlines
2: well i'm a ruthless time manager um, Ruthless. yeah i do That's a lot a of work. i do a lot of planning in advance yeah so and i like block off times to work on stuff um but it is always shifting you know moving your priorities around um and there's this, it's funny, that was the other thing with Toya Bodie's book. She wrote it in something like, she had the idea, and she said it was, you know, almost this, like, divine download, and mm-hmm. just, like, wrote the thing in <laughs> three months. Yeah. And that is not me. I would love for it to be me, but mm. I am, like, a plotter. And in writing terms, they call it pantser or plotter, and <laughs> and so I'm not somebody who's, like, Oh, I'll just, like, wait till the last month and bang it out, you know. I do it little by little little by little and create all these little mini deadlines for myself.
1: Do you have any, like, special, like, hacks or or games, gamification for, to get get a deadline done?
2: What a good idea. I should. Like, glass of champagne every time. Right? I
1: I just—I have to put the timer on— to yeah. be honest, that's yeah. like truly the only way stuff gets done.
2: Yeah. Like, is it like the Pomodoro technique where you like, whoa, do you know about that? No, it's actually <laughs> as a
1: name. I, I didn't know there was a name.
2: Yeah. I, I might get it <laughs> wrong, but I think it's like you set it for 25 minutes and then you take a five minute break and then 25 minutes, five minute break. And then maybe, I don't know. You got to look it up. But there's a, it's it's a way where you like do deep work, take a break, do deep work, take a break. And then there's like a longer break.
1: When you say so, take a break, you mean go on Twitter.
2: Totally. But then you got to put a timer on for that, right? 5 yeah. minutes like so, yeah. so 25 5.
1: I I 25 is not long enough. I need I think of it like writing like you got to warm it up. Agree. Like you're running like you do that first mile. Yeah. Agree. Which is like definitely Twitter or or maybe just reading um dirt, reading a great newsletter yeah. like dirt. But then it's like 90 minutes. That's mine. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I I definitely spend. I I don't do pomodoros because i agree that it's too short but
1: 90 is like for me that's the pocket that's the sweet spot yeah 90 on the clock that makes sense but i need the internet i can't write without it i'm a terrible speller and i just I need i need something that's fine do you do you, do you do you do you ever like take take the wi-fi off and just write
2: Rarely, that's yeah. a good idea. I should I, probably I, do that. I
1: can. <laughs> I, it- I, w-
2: I will, like, because I, you know, I'm a person with like 500 tabs open. So sometimes I will just put one tab, <laughs> like a, a browser, because I write a lot in Google Docs. So it's like yeah. one tab, nothing else to go to. And- oh
1: my gosh! We, if you've gotten this far in the show, you you're definitely into writing cookbooks or you're into the craft. Let's go to the Google Docs because I I live or die <laughs> by by the G Suite for my cookbooks. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: Oh my gosh! Well. It's funny, J.J. Good who's a well-known cookbook collaborator, he was talking about having, like, these, like, funny arguments in the comments yeah. of Google Docs, you know, with, uh, with his collaborators, um, and I live or die by them as well.
1: Me too. I, I think the, the comment um, barbing is great. When you have a collaborator, Dan Holzman and I wrote, have written a bunch together, and we do the same thing. Oh, nice. We troll each other in the comments. It's, <laughs> it is quite fun. That's awesome. Um, Kristen, we asked all guests on Taste podcast if you could write a cookbook. Or food culture book. This is relevant without the burden of time, deadline. We obviously just went over that. Or budget meaning you have all the money in the world. I know you've thought this through, Kristen. What is this book?
2: Ah, uh, so many. But you know, I have I have my little French fantasy, and I'm I particularly love the Savoie, and so I would love to go deeper in the Savoie. There's that amazing book about the alps by meredith erickson yeah but to just go deep on like one region and in france that would be pretty sweet
1: it would be sweet so, you, so you're gonna actualize this dream of moving to france and writing this book about the alps
2: i'm gonna actualize it yeah yeah, yeah i have an eight-year plan
1: i love the eight-year plans <laughs> does that real with children maybe being away from the nest
2: it does. <laughs>
1: Shocker. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Kristen Donnelly, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Matt. This is really fun.
1: The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.